Governor Sununu and I have, uh, have one thing in common. We both went to MIT. Um, we have some other similarities, but there, but there is, is a divergence at that point. His father went to MIT and was able to convince at least a few of his children to go to MIT. Um, I went to MIT. I was, I was not successful in, in persuading uh, any of my three daughters to go there. And I do remember the first campus visit when I said, uh, you know, what do you think? And, uh, and one of them said, have you seen these guys? And uh, I found that personally insulting. I don't think they realized the full implications of, of, that, of that remark. But then also, he was an engineer. And, uh, and I did not major in engineering, because I was in my first physics recitation with the TA. And the TA is illustrating a, a, a problem, one of our homework problems. And he, he shows us how to get the, down to the answer. And he says, and the answer is the 12th root of 2, whatever that is. And some propeller head from the back blurts out, you know, without skipping a beat, as if he did it in his head, 1.06. The 12th root of 2 is 1.06. And at that point, I knew, forget engineering, I want to get as, from MIT to Wall Street as quickly as I can. And so I was course 15, which is nerd speak for, uh, for management and finance. But Governor Sununu and Cato uh, do share many values. Um, we've actually admired his, his, uh, his tenure as governor, now in his third term. Uh, Cato publishes every other year our fiscal report card on the nation's governors, where we give every governor a letter grade on how they have done uh, managing spending and taxation in their states. And uh, I had a, the pleasure about a year ago to do a Zoom with Governor Sununu because he was the highest scoring governor, one of only, I believe, four A's, four or five A's. Um, so that was great to showcase uh, his record, his fiscal record. Um, I think he's done a great job depending upon uh, what the composition of the legislature is. I'm not gonna recite all of the things that he's gotten past and all of the th bad things that he's vetoed. But one thing that I think highlights um, what he's been able, able to accomplish in, in, uh, in New Hampshire is New Hampshire doesn't have a state income tax, doesn't have a sales tax, but it did have a, uh, and still does, but not for much longer, a tax on interest and dividends. And in the, uh, the last session, uh, Governor Sununu was able to uh, push through a phasing out of the interest and dividends tax. And to me, that's just an amazing political achievement because, you know, getting the, 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 the constituency, um, you know, that is interested in that kind of reform is, uh, can be pretty deep but not very wide. And that, I think, is just a, a great example of what he's been able to do. He also, uh, we publish every other year our Freedom in the 50 States where we rank the states New Hampshire had been a uh, number one for several editions, and then two years ago was nosed out by Florida. New Hampshire dropped to number two, Florida rose to number one, but in the latest uh, edition, uh, New Hampshire, thanks to the efforts of Governor Sununu, is, uh, is back to number one. So uh, you Floridians, you'd have to be like Avis for the next two years and try a little harder. Governor Sununu, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. Um, first, it's great to see everybody. I, 
I would not want to do this on like 200 tiny heads on a Zoom call or anything like that. Um, it's great to, to kind of be back to normal a little bit. I think we're all feeling a little bit refreshed. We're not quite out of it yet, but uh, numbers are always looking much and much better. Um, so it, it is good to see so many folks willing to, to come out. A um, couple things I thought I would do. I, I really want to take questions. I'm dying to hear what you guys have on your minds because that's how I, I, I really try to figure out what's important to folks. I, I do a press conference every single week um, partly to give the information to the citizens about what's going on, specifically around COVID, but other stuff as well. But one thing I, I am very insistent on doing, I never leave until the press has literally no more questions. I've never walked out with somebody saying we have one more question, which is a point of personal pride. It means I'm exhausting them, um, <laughs> right? But it's also about two things happen there. It's, uh, it's a, being super transparent, and we'll talk about the value of transparency and what it does for your constituency. Um, but it also lets me know what is really out there. And one thing I try to tell people all the time in the State House, a lot of people think, well, the leaders of the State House, the Senate and the House and the governor are going to get together and provide some answers and solutions for this state. No, we're not. Um, we are the tools. You guys have the answers. The citizens understand the problems. The citizens are actually dealing with the barriers of a broken system. And so to hear back from the citizens what is actually happening, and then we're the tools to actually get some, something done and break down those barriers. Um, and that's my, one of my fundamental philosophies of how to approach government. First, I don't have all the answers. I'm just a, a means to get something done. But you've got to be very open. And you've got to really champion the individual. You've got to talk about what's happening and, and ask what is happening in your business or your school or with your kids or with your health care or with your veteran services. What is happening with you? And where has the system not worked for you? Because chances are, if it hasn't worked for you, it probably didn't work for 10,000 other folks. So let me dive into that. I tend to be very, very detail-oriented. It's a lot of work, but boy, it allows us to really dig at issues at a fundamental level. Doesn't mean we throw entire programs out, but you want to drain a swamp? You want to make something efficient? You better, you got to know how it works first, right? And it's the engineer in me. I was a civil and environmental engineer. Um, I designed a lot of systems, and one thing I, you learn on day one at, at MIT, uh, as long as you get through that first physics, physics class, um, <laughs> is that you never design the system perfect the first time. You just don't. That would be incredibly arrogant to think that way. And so one thing I, I also try to bring to government is flexibility. So we're going to write a bill. We have a, an idea. We're going to do these five things. But let's make sure that we know if these five things don't work, it's nothing that we are stuck with for five years. Right? We can pivot. We can move the funding. We can move the infrastructure. We can move because things move. They could be external factors. They could be internal. We could have had a great idea and just missed the mark a little bit. Well, let's not suffer with that, right? Something that Washington does absolutely terribly, and most states actually don't do very well. But I, I try to take that engineering mindset into the job every day so that we build that flexibility, focus on the individual, so we can always tinker with it a little bit. And that's a good thing. You always want to be able to tinker with something. Uh, let me take a quick step back before we get to the questions. Talk a little bit about, um, as was mentioned, we don't have sales tax or income tax. i, I got to be honest, when I talked, my dad was governor back in the 80s, and when I... Uh, he's really good. You guys have probably seen him on TV and all that, blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> guy doesn't shut up, but he, uh, he's doing really well. And he's good about not giving me unsolicited advice. Because he said something, he said, I could give you all the unsolicited advice in the world, but no one ever takes unsolicited advice. So he said, so when you have a question, call me. I'm always here for you. So I call him during the budget. I said, I'm going after the interest and dividends tax. And he just started laughing. He said, good luck, you can't do it, you know, there's just, it's too entrenched, you know, all the, the wealthy people that come up for the summer end up paying a lot of that tax, and blah, 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 and, uh, and when I got it done, 
believe me, who I called first, right? And, and we are. We're rolling that from 5% down to 4.3. It'll be at zero, I think, in two years, something like that. Um, and, and again, it isn't just getting another tax win. Um, by forcing good fiscal responsibility, you, again, allow the ability to be efficient. If you force the ability to be efficient in government, I force other people who might not be completely like-minded with me about decentralizing government and getting it back to local control to have to be like-minded with me because we're, we just don't have the revenue coming in. Now, we have other means of revenue, of course, in New Hampshire. Um, most, of the prop, most of the tax you pay is at the property tax level. We have pretty high property tax, to be sure. But the beauty of that, and I don't want to say the beauty of a tax, but the beauty of that system is I live in a town of 1,500 people. Okay, if I don't like how the, two, the majority of my taxes are being spent, I know the first names and the cell numbers of every one of my town selectmen and my budget committee. And if I don't like it, I'm going to see Art in aisle seven at the grocery store, and I'm going to give Art a piece of my mind for not passing the right budget and balancing it. So there's great accountability in that. You know folks by first name in your community that's controlling the bulk of your taxes. So it's a very different system, but it allows, again, the individual and the families and the citizens to have so much say in that process. I believe very much as a governor, I shouldn't be pulling in more power, I should be decentralizing power. Very different approach. Somebody asked me earlier about uh, Chris Christie in New Jersey. I love Chris. Chris and I have been friends for a long time. New Jersey, constitutionally, is like the most powerful governor you can have. The governor of New Jersey, whoever it might be, with a swipe of a pen can do pretty much whatever they want. And it's designed that way in their constitution. It's actually terrible. I, constitutionally, you could say, are one of the weaker, weaker governors. I have an executive council that checks all of my uh, contracts. Get this, in New Hampshire, every two weeks, every contract over $10,000 is openly debated with every commissioner, five executive councilors, and the governor in an open and public meeting anybody can come to, and we talk about every single contract. It's an unbelievable process. And Republicans and Democrats sit shoulder to shoulder, Every, every, this is something from 1680. King George I came up with this idea. He didn't want any of the, he called them presidents of the, of the colonies at the time, to have too much power. So every state had a, an executive council to check how the, the financial and fiduciary responsibility of the governor. Well, most states got, quote, smart and found ways to get rid of theirs. And so we're really one of the only states that has, has one left and definitely the only one that does this. But if anything, in New Hampshire, we keep giving them more power, the executive council. We keep giving them more control because they are such a good checks and balance. We don't have financial shenanigans, right, in New Hampshire because it's so open and public. And the fact you can come to that meeting, sit right next to the attorney general or the commissioner of HHS in the, in the crowd because we don't get separated. We all sit publicly. You can literally walk right up to the governor in that meeting and just start a conversation if you want. Amazing power in that process because it tells the individual, I might not be able to solve, wave a magic wand and solve your problem, but you have a voice and I have to listen as an elected official and we'll try the best to hook you up with the right people and, and, and get you what you need. So that fundamentally, that connection, 400 representatives representing 1.4 million people, are you kidding? I mean, it is the most representative, our legislature, that's our legislature, 400 of them and they get paid 100 bucks a year. I mean, it's like herding cats, don't get me wrong. I mean, you guys here, this is like a, this is a caucus. This is not even our, our legislature, right? So to have 400, and we all, this is another amazing part of our system. We all have to get elected every two years. I'm one of the only governors, me and Phil Scott from Vermont, I gotta get elected every two years, and it sucks. It's terrible. It's really hard, but it's wonderful, because the citizens have all the say. 
Do your job, and if you want to keep it and you get results, then by God, we'll hire you again. But if you don't, we're going to fire you faster than anybody, and we're going to get someone in there that understands the power of the individual and the power of the citizens. And it's a, it really is great that way. It really is. <clears throat> so I, just to, and, and we're going to open up for questions, but, you know, some of the things we're most proud of, obviously, I'm, I'm a big anti-tax guy, and I've never raised a tax. I've never raised a tax. I've never made an excuse. And we got a lot of that going around, right? Um, there's always, well, we had to raise this one here. And, well, that tax only affects out-of-staters. That, no. Cut your taxes. Force your legislature to do more with less. Force your executive branch to do more with less. It's what we do in New Hampshire. We've been incredibly successful. And my job isn't to solve all your problems and create a program that solves your problem. My job is to, as governor is to create as many doors of opportunity for your business, for your family, for the services that we're providing. And then you do you. What door? You pick whatever door you want, what best fits you and your needs. I, we fought tooth and nail for 30 years to get school choice done. Last year, we got it done. We got school choice done. And that allows low-income families a specifically, right? My motto's really easy. Private school, you know, school choice ain't for the rich kids any, just for the rich kids anymore, right? Because wealthy families obviously have a little more means. They can go to private schools or parochial schools or whatever it's going to be. Charter schools obviously are very strong in New Hampshire. And we're in a state... That I, I, Jeb Bush, the godfather of school choice, I mean, that guy, that guy, what he has done for education across this country and setting the tone for all of us other states that have followed has been amazing. Um, his, his programs here and his advocacy has been wonderful. And the models work. And so are, of the 400 in the legislature, did I have some super majority to get that done? No. I had 208 Republicans, 192 Democrats. Razor thin margins. And about... To be fair, about 20, 25 of those Republicans were really super, I'll call them, I'll be, I'll be nice and call them super hardcore libertarian, like the, the free stater movement, which is great. They vote with Republican most of the time, but they can be pretty difficult on a few issues some of the time as well, right? So, uh, but again, in that system, it has a checks and balance, but we were able to make the right arguments and focus on the families that matter. And in that case, just to give it as the example, it was a lot of low-income families in the inner city, uh, people of color, who just figured, my kid is stuck in this terrible school and I got no other choice. No. Now the state money that goes to that school is now yours. Because it ain't my money, it's your money. And it's that family's money. I've just been given the responsibility of trying to manage it. And there's no greater responsibility in all of public service. And I think, for, I, think I speak for every private CEO too. There's no greater responsibility than managing somebody else's money. That's a great trust that they're giving you and you gotta take it very seriously. I wish everybody kind of had that, that, that first, first mindset. But by doing that and just focusing on the school choice thing, which we were able to do this year, again, it's, we thought, well, maybe three, 400 families might take advantage. Thousands in the first year. We're not even through the first year yet. It just started in September. Thousands of families have signed up. Nothing but rave reviews because they have the option. Our public schools are phenomenal. I'm the first governor in 25 years of New Hampshire to come up through our public schools. Went to you know, Woodbury High School in Salem, New Hampshire and North Salem Elementary School. They're phenomenal. They're always ranked in the top five or, or ten of the country. But they're phenomenal for 98% of the kids. There's always one or two percent where the four walls just ain't working. Maybe one child is dyslexic and he has a teacher that can't spend enough time there. Maybe someone's an auditory learner. Maybe someone just has a lot of other interests and doesn't have the, a lot of the executive functions of, of the organization that is required in a classroom, but has all this, other, all this untapped potential. That's what school choice is about, untapping potential. And my job is to create another door of opportunity so you and your kids can walk through it and untap that potential. Don't, I'm not there to tell you how to do it. 
I'm just there to set it up for you. And I think by doing that and championing the individual, empowering the local communities, when we have extra money at the state level, we send it back to the cities and towns to lower those property taxes. When we have extra money at the state level, we send it back to the actual taxpayers. We're able to cut all these taxes, yet I'm the fastest growing state in the Northeast, the only one with population increase. Businesses are falling over themselves to come in there. And so what happens? My revenues are going through the roof. I mean, I'm going to have more. We literally have more money than we know what to do with right now. And so the good news is I'll cut, cut more taxes, right? We'll just keep cutting them because we're showing that you can do more with less. Um, it's a hard thing to, to get at, and I think from a leadership position, you gotta dig into those details sometimes. Uh, but, but that's the fun part of the work. It's incredibly challenging, but as a governor, it's amazingly fulfilling. Because we don't just pass that program, I then go back to Mary, well, I don't wanna, we've done a lot on, on suicide, especially mental health, huge issue. You wanna talk about the unspoken crisis of this country, it's mental health, I'll come back and give you two hours on it. Um, and again, it's not my job just to, pump more money into a system that wasn't getting results. Sometimes you gotta blow the system up. We've taken mental health, we've broken it down to its bare bones, we're building up a system for the 21st century that really focuses on the individual, not just the traditional old players that just keep getting checks from the government. Same thing with SUD. You guys know New Hampshire was, was no uh, secret. We were kind of the tip of the spear for the opioid crisis in, in this country a few years ago. In 2016, the numbers were skyrocketing like this. And I did something very risky. I went into all the providers that provided uh, treatment and recovery, and I said, we're breaking down your systems. We're not getting rid of you, but we're going to fund you differently. We're going to put you in different regions. We're going to do it different. And my engineering mind took on, and I rebuilt the whole system. And someone said, this is never going never gonna to work. In the last two years, New Hampshire is the only state in the country where drug overdoses have gone down. And I'm very proud of that. We've got a lot of work to do. We created regional access to treatment and recovery. We didn't leave the rural communities out. We found out that addiction was so high in these rural communities, even though all our services were in the central city. So when you make connectivity, regional connectivity to the same programs, it works. And it keeps them, that's the other thing. It wasn't everyone running to Manchester for their service, which creates other problems for the city of Manchester. It decentralizes, right? So you gotta put your ego aside and say, you know, again, the job is bigger than, than ourselves as public servants. It's really about those individuals. So um, look, we don't do everything perfect by any means. Um, I'm, I'm close, but I, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> my mother would drag me off the stage by my ear if she heard me saying that. But we are very proud of our system and keeping to it. When the Democrats two years ago, we had a Republican legislature when I got first elected. Two years later, Democrats wiped everybody out but me. And it was basically me holding a line. I vetoed a record number of bills. They tried to put income taxes in and all this kind of crazy stuff that you thought Democrats wouldn't even be stupid enough to do when they did. And then I, in my third campaign, I invested all my money not into me, but into the House races, and we were the only state in the country to go from fully Democrat House and Senate to a fully Republican House and Senate, so we were able to champion a lot of this stuff and, and get these things done. But it, it doesn't happen because I say so, it doesn't happen because you raise a lot of money, it happens because the individual's gotta come first. So that's kind of the secret sauce, and I'm very proud of being both fiscally responsible and recognized. It is kind of weird being here, not in the freest state, being in the second freest state. <laughs> feels odd, just feels weird, I don't know, I'll, I'll get over it somehow. I made the joke last night that DeSantis should take some notes, but no, he's doing a good job. Ron, Ron is actually doing a very good job, but, um, but we are proud to, and it's not easy to get here, but we are proud to be recognized by such a, an esteemed uh, institute, a, nationally, uh, a national institute like Cato, who does so much and provides so much data and input for us. It's pretty cool. All right, I'm, I'm a Sununu. I could go on for hours, so I won't, I won't do that. Let's open up for questions and, and jump at me with whatever, whatever you possibly got. Nothing off the table.
Oh, yep. Yeah. I think they're going to come out with the microphones. Just keep your hands raised. Governor, with your level of passion and someone like Ron DeSantis as well, how serious is the talk of secession from the union? Because it just seems like so many pieces are so irretrievably broken. Is that a serious hope for people like ourselves? To, to succeed, secede from the union? No, that's a horrible idea. It's, uh, that's what we call crazy talk and should never happen. Like, that's just it, yeah. Because this is what it's saying. That is a place of fear. That's saying we can't win as libertarians and republicans. We can't fix the system. That's, that's conceding. That's saying we give up. No way, man. You've got to be optimistic. You've got to be positive. You've got to say, it's my job to inspire the next generation of leadership to run for Congress, run for Senate, become good governors, focus on the Tenth Amendment, give states more power, and we bring all of this back. But if you say, we're just going to leave, you know, we're going to take our ball and go home. Yeah, you, if you th feel like you're losing and you just don't want to be part of the team anymore, that, I'm, I, I don't mean to be overly blunt. That's a loser's proposition. You've got to be positive and believe in what we can do. And, and if we do it, and you get results not just in New Hampshire or Florida, wherever, we lead by example. Show those successes and inspire folks to get on the team. And then you don't have to have this secession talk or whatever it is. So, You bet. When are you going to run for president? <laughs> When's the race? No, I'm just kidding. Now, look, I, I got to win in 22. People ask me about that stuff all the time, but, um, you know, I love what I do. I love being governor. If I really thought I could make, I think everyone, a lot of folks know I was uh, asked to run for the Senate and all that, and, and I was going to run. I was going to go to Washington, and I got to tell you, I, didn't, I wasn't thrilled. Democrats do nothing. They're just, they roadblocked everything for four years with the former President Trump, and I, I'll just politely say I did not appreciate many of the answers I got from, from the other side as to, to why I should, should be there, so. Uh, <laughs> I'll talk, to you in, uh, I'll talk to you in about a year. We'll see. I don't know. I'm not thinking about that right now, but we'll see. I think the whole presidential landscape is going to flip over three times between now and the next year and a half. I, as I could talk to you about the first in the nation primary and all that, but um, I just think we're still far away from knowing who's going to run, what the issues are going to be. You know, it, 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 it'll be interesting. It'll be fun, but. Uh, Governor, I understand that I don't want to rush you before you run for president, but. <laughs> Maybe it's too much to ask, but would you consider moving to Illinois and running for governor? So let me tell you, I, I, I get along with JB uh, Pritzker. He, he, he and I get along for whatever reason. Early on in the pandemic, all the governors came together. And we do. If, if you want to talk about a, the most bipartisan group that works together, it's governors. Because it, there's really no ego there. It's what are you doing? How do you design the system? We share a lot of ideas, and especially early on in the pandemic. Um, I did make the comment once that I could fix Illinois in about 16 minutes um, because the bar is set so freaking low. I mean, it's a disaster, right? You know? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel bad. If you're, in, if you're in Illinois, that's your problem. You've made that choice. It's called New Hampshire. Come on up. I'll find you a place to live in, in two minutes. I'll get your house right next to, you know, between Romney and all the other, all the other bigwigs that are up there. Marriott, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, hi. Governor, good job. Congratulations on uh, your number one ranking on freedom. That's terrific. So uh, let's talk about the China policy that Nancy Pelosi would like to implement around social credit scores. I understand New Hampshire has something to say about that. Well, yeah, we, I wish, I mean, the hard part about being governor is you see all this stuff happening from a foreign perspective. Uh, one of the first things I was told is you cannot sign agreements with foreign powers, and because I, I wanted to, right? Uh, I want to sue foreign powers and sign agreements with them. So 
I got to be, be careful not to get too deep in the weeds. Trade is good. Free trade is good. I'm a big believer in free trade. I'm a big believer in open markets. And I understand that you have to have some practical impl implications there. My biggest fear, talking specifically about China, Russia, some of the bigger threats out there, is they are not dumb. They're taking advantage of timing and weakness. And timing both in terms of they have Democrats that don't, frankly, have a backbone to do what has to be done, and I think that's what you're referring to. Timing in terms of a president that I think gets some of these issues but really clearly isn't calling the shots. And timing in that you have an American public that clearly isn't willing to jump back into a war without an exit strategy or anything like that. And we saw what happened. The Afghan stuff was just a disaster at the end, um, not handled very well on a variety of levels. And, and so... I think from an international stage, there's a lot of powers, even our friends, not that they want to harm us, but that will take advantage of our weak international position right now. Trade is huge, right? Supply chain is huge. And unless you're willing to put your foot down and force some things that have to be forced, we're just not going to see it out of this administration. And Congress is unwilling to, to step up as well. So I think we're in a, a bit of a stagnation period, a little, unfortunately. Um, I don't know who the next president's going to be. I think we all, a lot of us, I don't want to speak for this group, but I, I hope it's obviously not this administration. But having an international backbone is so important because that drives the future. And not in a authoritarian, you must do what the United States says way, you know, with a, with a, with a, with a with the stick. You got to do it with the carrot. I believe so much more. It's, it's a cliche, but so much more gets done with honey than, than with you know, beating somebody over the head all day because you build long-term relationships that way and you build trust. Transparency and communication is the foundation of public trust and that public trust extends to our, our international partners as well. Uh, it was announced, uh, it was on the front page of the New York Times that we just went over 30 trillion in deficit. I wonder what suggestion you might have to the current administration as to how you would deal with that or oh i've got suggestions and future I future generations. yeah so look you start you start by making by having political courage they're all convinced even republicans and uh, are all convinced that if you even try to balance the budget it's political suicide wrong because every business has to do it every family has to do it and if you stood up and did it, as painful as it could be, certain programs might have to get cut or pulled back or whatever it is. You gotta work on the entitlements. This idea that, well, if we stop cut, if we pull back on some of these entitlements, people will be angry and not vote for us. Wrong, right? People are always, we talked about this a little last night, you know, the level at which people will vote their own self-interest. It's not just about, well, I have a, an entitlement today, I might get less tomorrow, so therefore I won't vote for that guy. There's a bigger picture of balancing a budget that comes into play. I balance mine every, every other year. And guess what? When you do it right and cut taxes and you control the spending, you have massive opportunity that comes in. But Washington on both sides of the aisle doesn't seem to get that. And they're very, they're very cowardly that way. But they don't understand America would stand up and praise them for doing it. The elderly would stand up and say thank you if you said, look, your social security is gonna disappear in 10 years. We gotta fix that. Doesn't mean we take it away, but we're gonna have a new system, a new design to get better returns and still maintain it. But they're unwilling to do that. Medicare. I mean, you gotta deal with this Medicare issue. But they're afraid. But they don't realize, they're not afraid for the right reasons. They're afraid because, again, they think people will, will not like them for it and not vote for them for it. But I think you, you again, gotta show by examples in terms of like what we do at the state level. You can do it and be championed for it. And then at the end of the day, I'm a big believer, term limit solves a lot of this. Right? If somebody knows that they're not going to be there next year, 
They're much more willing, and they don't have to raise money, and they don't have to do all that. They don't need to grandstand on Fox News or CNN. I mean, 80% of the people in Washington spend 80% of their time figuring out how to get on the news that night, right? As opposed to getting stuff done. You know, in New Hampshire, I have to get elected every two years, so people say, my God, you must start raising money and, getting, and, and trying to be, you know, running your campaign as soon as you're elected. Just the opposite. You know, I haven't raised or asked for a penny from anybody since October of 2020. I don't run my races. I, 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 wait, I keep them as short as possible. And by doing that, I get way more done. If I'm campaigning and asking for money while I'm trying to pass a budget, it all falls apart. I can't get as much done. If I'm campaigning and asking for money while I'm trying to rebuild a system, I can't do it as much because there's that variable of politics come in, comes into play, and that's never good. So I get as much as I possibly can do, can do in, a, in the time frame I can, keep the campaign shorter because campaigns stink anyways. I mean, it's just, they're, really, they're really hard, and they're taxing on your family. Now, it means I, gotta, you know, I should probably start raising money. I get it. Um, I don't have a whole lot of money in the account, but I, can't, I have a lot of successes. And I'm proud of that. And I'll run on that record of success. So if Washington had more of that mentality or got rid or had at least a third of them that you know, didn't have to run in a given year, there's, all it takes is a few to, to, to find a willingness to compromise, right? You know, cinema and mansion have, have really held the line. And they're going to get crucified for it, but they shouldn't be, right? And I think there's some Republicans that you know, should be reaching across the aisle as well. And some have to get the infrastructure bill done. But you know, they're going to get crucified for it. But they shouldn't be. So I think term limits would be a great solution there. And people say, well, they'll never vote themselves out of office. Well, the answer is actually quite simple. You pass a bill that says term limits for the next guy, right? We're all grandfathered in, but as each of us leave, the next guy gets a term limit. It sounds silly, but they would all vote for it because it doesn't harm them, and America would, would cheer them for it because long term, it would fix the system. Hey, that was a good idea. I think I will run for president. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, there are many Americans who seem to fear immigration, but even at the state level, you hear of New Hampshire worrying about the people from Massachusetts coming, <laughs> or the here in Florida. Uh, is is there concern in New Hampshire about who you're attracting as as, as residents? That's an awesome question. So, uh, yeah, we're pulling a lot of people in. the The myth is that folks out of Massachusetts make our state more liberal. Uh, that's actually not true. Most of the folks in Massachusetts are so close to New Hampshire, they know. Live free or die, it's not four cute words on a license plate. It is really how we live. It's ingrained in our DNA. They get that. They come for the right reasons, and that's why places on the eastern side of the state, Rockingham and Hillsborough County and the southern part connected to Mass, tend to be more Republican. The folks I fear are the ones from, no offense, well, take offense, I don't care, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, right, especially during COVID. They all ran out of there like, you know, like you whacked a bee's nest, and they all ran to New Hampshire. It was great for business, but it's my job to remind them why they came, right? It's my job to remind them what the power of town meeting is, the power of running an efficient government without taxes, and to show that and not take it for granted. They all came running, but you can't assume that they, they know exactly why they came. They knew it for a quick second, but it's amazing after a few years, like, well, back, back in, when I lived in New Jersey, we just, we just had this income tax and a sales tax. It was no big deal. It would be fundamentally disastrous for a place like New Hampshire, but so they carry those bad politics with them. Um, on, on a more serious note, let me pivot a little bit on the, on the immigration issue, right? I think immigration is one of those things, I, uh, the way I explained it is, Republicans want to see immigration reform, and they've come up with their 10 ideas, and Democrats have their 10 ideas on how to do immigration reform. And I can promise you three or four of those ideas are almost the same. 
there is a huge ability for Congress and the Senate to get together in a bipartisan way and take the first steps. But they want, each side wants all 10 things. As opposed to saying, if I just get these three or four pieces done, that we can, the low-hanging fruit we can all agree on, and then we build on that. And then next year, we do a little more. And next year, we do a little more. But you've you got to take advantage of the common ground you have. Everybody wants immigration reform. Because that way, immigration can happen the right way. And we can get people into this country, which we need to happen, but in a safe and a lawful way. And they don't bring the drugs and the human and the sex trafficking, which affect New Hampshire as much as anywhere else. Right? 99% of all the opioids in your state are coming over that border today. Right? 99% of the human trafficking in your state is originating on that southern border. That, that isn't myth. That is data, fact, undeniable. I was with the president and the vice president two days ago. All of us governors were. And, you know, the vice president said, you know, we're really going after the root of the problem in Honduras. Well, that's just wonderful. But how about the crisis in America? I mean, but she literally just wouldn't even acknowledge the crisis in America. She was going to take the win on the root cause in Honduras. And that's, and I, I, you know, you look at them and go, are you surprised you have a 40% approval rating? Right? This is the good news. And I go back to the succession comment. America has quickly, I don't want to say turned on the administration, but, Amer but voters are smart. This idea that voters aren't smart, they are smart. And within a year, they're turning right on this administration saying, you're not living up to any of the standards you told us you would. You're not being bipartisan. You're not working across the aisle. You're not addressing our crisis issues that you promised us you would. You're, you're trying to legislate with exec executive order. And as Americans, we are watching. And that's why I'm so optimistic. Because America has a, its own checks and balance system every four years. And those guys are going to get kicked right. I don't know who's going to be the next president, but those guys are going to get kicked right out of there. If Congress listens as well and doesn't just say, well, Republicans are going to win strong in 22, so now it's our turn to be authoritarian, we're going to blow it. We're going to absolutely blow it. The responsibility of the majority party, no matter what party you're in, is to reach across the aisle. It doesn't mean you have to give the other side everything they want, but why do we have a filibuster? I'm a big believer in the filibuster because it forces the majority to at least take some pieces of the minority's voice because they represent a lot of people too. And so you have to allow the minority to have some say. That's what Republicans are fighting for right now, and I hope they're wise and they listen and don't repeat the same mistake for the third time, because they blew it in 17 and 18, right? I mean, we had the presidency, the House, and the Senate. Could have fixed all this. Did nothing. Did nothing. We didn't balance. We didn't even. Have you ever even heard of a Republican proposing a balanced budget in the last 20 years? I mean, have you even heard of it? I, I'm, I'm like personally insulted by that kind of stuff. At least try. And, you know, I've asked ranking members, and they said, well, we probably still couldn't get it passed. I said, well, who cares? Force the vote. Force those Republicans who don't want to vote for a balanced budget to stand up and say, I'm not going to vote for a balanced budget. You'll be surprised what happens, right? Force it. And it's okay, because then when you force the vote, you say, well, we couldn't get these five or six. We need to make these changes. And you go back and work on it again. But that place has such an all-or-nothing mentality. They're so disconnected from the individual. It drives me crazy. So I didn't mean to go off so long on that one, but that's just, again, you don't do it with, with anger and pounding on people. You do it with positivity and showing a model of success. And let's remember, 50 states, we created you, Washington, right? You work for us. Federalism says the 50 states come first. The 10th Amendment says we come first. You come first. They should be second tier to us, which is the responsibility we have of setting that example. Sure. How Hi. come nobody wants to discuss how bad inflation is going to get to be in the next five years? I'm 75 years old, and in 19, 19, 19, uh, 
76, you could buy a brand new Pontiac Bonneville for $6,000. In 77, it cost $7,000. In 78, it cost $8,500. In 79, it cost $10,000. In 80, it cost $11,500. In 76, you could get a car loan for 7.5%. In 1981, it cost 22% interest to get a car loan. You, uh, you could buy a house in 1976 with 20% down and get a 7.5% mortgage. In 1980, you had to put down 40% and you got a 15 or 16% mortgage. So the, the, uh, the, the uh, okay, there's, there's thousands of, uh, hundreds of freighters that are sitting out in the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. There's 10,000 widgets on, every, on all those boats and I'm not gonna see them for 40, 50 or 100 days. I'm in the widget manufacturing business. I sell 1,000 widgets a day. I only can get 800. So I've got 200 widgets times 60 days. I can't sell to my customers. My overhead's a million dollars a year. I gotta raise my prices 20% just to keep my head above water. Oof. We're gonna have inflation in the next two or three or four years that is horrible. Nobody in Congress wants to talk about it. People mm. in the country don't want to talk. People don't. So, yeah. so, uh, so what do you see? How do you see well, inflation? Look, look, the first problem we have to address is that you're trying to buy a Pontiac in the 70s. That was just, that's a bad choice right there. <laughs> that was a bad choice. No. So um, look, you look at all the money that we're spending, right? When you go to Washington, we, and when we were, we were there as governors and we're talking to the administration, and it's, well, this supply chain issue is very complex. It, it's not. And, and I challenge anyone who buys that garbage. I have 100 boats in the water. I have a port. I need to get stuff off the boat on the port, and then I put it on a train and the trucks, and we drive the truck. It is, it is very doable. And with all the crazy money Washington is willing to spend, the fact that they won't send... Look, I'm not the biggest fan of California, and, and go, I love California, I just can't stand the, the politics out there. I lived, I lived in San Francisco for three years, that's like a whole other book. But with all the money they're spending, you can't tell me they can't send a few billion to those ports, do some sort of stipend, get the, the manpower there to get the stuff off the boats, put, put it where it needs to be, just take care of the short-term issue, and then work with our international par partners to, to help it. I know it's not that, that simple, I, I, I get I'm oversimplifying somewhat, but the fact is, is that they have no thinkers. And you don't need to be a genius to figure this stuff out, right? Just good economists, nonpartisan economists, folks out of, well, get them out of New York, I don't care where you get them, get folks that understand how an economy moves and put the right pieces. What do you have? You have a Federal Reserve that has a, a, almost pretty much admitted to gaming the system on interest rates for social restructuring of, of, of the American wages. And great, more people are making money, but oh, there's that whole inflation thing. I mean, who hired these bozos? My, my, my ninth grade son in Economics 101 in, in high school could tell you that that was going to lead to inflation. I mean, this isn't some unproven model time and time again, right? You know, there's this like Milton Friedman guy, you know, he kind of got it. He, he wrote the book on this stuff, a lot of people have. So my frustration is that we're not trying to solve a problem that is unsolvable. We're acting like it's unsolvable and so complex, but people don't have the political courage to stand up and say, well, maybe, and, and I would champion them if I say, you know, I think we went a little too far. We were trying to do this. It didn't really work. It's hitting inflation. I'm asking the Fed to move the rates and pull back here and, because inflation is something that everybody's going to have to deal with. And who does it, what is inflation? It is the worst tax on the poor you can do because that guy has to put gas in his gas tank as much as the rich guy does. And he's got to get to work as much as anybody. Then you add on top of it, you know, this rental relief stuff. And look, the money's out there. People are taking advantage of the federal program, but 
we don't have a rental relief problem in New Hampshire, I can tell you that. Right? We have a housing issue. We don't have enough bricks and mortar. And when I ask the administration, you're going to send all this money to New Hampshire, let me build more housing. Supply and demand, right? Economics 101. If I increase supply, prices go down, right? Demand is there. No, 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 you can't do that. You have to use rental relief. I said, I have a one, less than 1% vacancy rate, right? Everyone's got a job. I got, I, got, I got the lowest unemployment in the country. So that ain't my problem. But again, it's Washington saying one size fits all. We're willing to allow states the flexibility. Say what you want about former President Trump, but God bless Mike Pence, by the way, because he was a governor. So when he became vice president, Trump said and, and really pushed on, on the vice president, let the states do what states do best. Because New York doesn't have the same problems as New Hampshire or Arizona or California. They're all different. And Democrat governors want that flexibility too. And so they allowed us to do that. This administration, one size fits all. We, uh, we, we get the ARP money, a thousand pages of rules on how to spend ARP money. When the initial rules came out with CARES Act, with former President Trump, three pages. It was literally three pages on how you could spend that money. If it's not specified here, do what you got to do to help your economy, help your citizens, buy PPE, do whatever you got, do what you got to do. And it was awesome. And New Hampshire was very successful that way. I think a lot of states were. But this one, it's, it's, it's that one-size-fits-all mentality. We're going to use this to social engineer and really not care about what inflation truly means down the road because we're just trying to keep the economy falsely propped up to the next election. But inflation is today. And as much as you tell people it's going away tomorrow, it doesn't matter what you tell them because the prices will still be high tomorrow. Well, that was a downer. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, one, that's a hard one to fix, to be sure. Okay. All right, let's do it. You mentioned earlier a couple of uh, media outlets. Do you have any comments about how media is, has uh, evolved? Not so much technologically, but uh, more so attitudinally. Evolved? Media has eaten? No, I think the devolved is where that goes. So let me tell you my take on, on, on America's big problem. You're in the fifth grade. You hear there's going to be a fight after school on, on the playground, right? Where did everyone show up after school? On the playground, right? We all went to go see the fight. Social media gets invented, and they realize really quick, people want to show up for a fight. So we're going to let people rant and rave on social media. We're going to let the extremes have the microphone. And people went at it. And holy cow, did social media make billions upon billions upon billions. And unfortunately, now super mega companies that control all, all of our lives, somewhat, except in New Hampshire. A few years later, mainstream media goes, what are we doing? We, we, they're, they're taking all the, all the money, all the advertising. So mainstream media, cable news as well, gets into it and says, we're going to be about the fight as well. And so this idea of nonpartisan media, straight news, that goes right out the window. And now you have CNN and MSNBC on one side, Fox on the other. Both are extremely partisan in their viewpoints. There's basically a lot of pundits talking, which is fine. It's entertaining, but it's not real news. It's not we're giving you both sides, right? It's not getting rid of the spin. I mean, it really is the, all the spin all the time. And so that's, and they're making a hell of a lot of money on it. Now, if you look at public confidence in, main, in media, it's at an all-time low. Nobody has, the good news is, again, Americans are smart. And they're saying, well, I understand what, if I'm listening to CNN, it comes with a spin. If I'm listening to Fox, it comes with a spin. But I like watching it because they're saying back to me what I already think, right? You don't have a whole lot of Democrats jumping onto Fox. You have a lot of independents, not a whole lot of Republicans jumping into the MSNBC world because we like to hear back and get that reaffirmation that we were right in the first place as opposed to the challenge of challenging ourselves with different points of view. 
Where does it go? I don't know, other than um, I think we're stuck with it for a while, and it really comes back to if we're going to champion the individual and let them come first, well, the individual has the responsibility of how they get their news and where they get it. I was on CNN the other day, and she asked me, Dana Bash asked me, what did, uh, she, oh, should we, um, should, we, should we ban Joe Rogan, right, from Spotify because of misinformation? And the answer is actually quite simple. Misinformation one day is a political bias the next, right? You know, what you believe is true one day might be dis discredited the next, and frankly, it might come back as being proven true a year from now. Was it misinformation when Kamala Harris and Joe Biden told people that they didn't trust the vaccine back in 2020, but then all of a sudden they're all for it once they get elected, right? Was it mis... No. So, you know, we have a responsibility as individuals, and I try to teach this and instill this into my kids, where you get information and how you get it doesn't mean it's always true. You have to keep digging, and you, you have to use your own judgment, and that's why education is so important. But it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a wild west in terms of how we get our information. Look, social... Uh, Social media is the bane of human existence, right? It's just the worst thing in the world. It brings out the worst in everybody. It's a, it's a really great technology that we are not mature enough to handle. We are not mature enough to handle the responsibility of social media and knowing that we can interact with the entire world on a moment's notice. And sometimes people might take notice. And the louder you're yelling, the more outrageous I am, maybe more people will actually take notice. So I think the next generation, my generation blew it. You know, my generation kind of invented social media. We, didn't, we kind of blew it in terms of the responsibility. Um, I, I think my kids do a pretty good job understanding that, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt. But it is unfortunate that mainstream media and cable news can't come back to the middle a little bit because I think the ratings would go through the roof. But you know what you're seeing come back? Small local newspapers, right? Small local newspapers are actually having a huge resurgence because people would... Well, I'd rather see the positive of what's happening in their local town with local issues and is that pothole getting filled and how are my property taxes funding the schools as opposed to the just rancor back and forth. There's a lot of negativity. I don't have cable. I don't have cable TV, right? I won't watch it. I've never, this, I can't tell you how many campaign commercials I've run and I've, never, I've, I've been in. I've never seen myself, right? I refuse to watch myself on television because it's interlaced with so much other negativity. And, and I, I can't live in that world. I have a responsibility to keep moving forward, super positive, designing systems, hoping for the future, designing for that future. Can't do that effectively if you're always yelling at somebody, if you're spending all your time just back and forth, back and forth in the fight. I got a bigger job than that. And, and I would like to know, I'd like to get into it. That sounds fun, just watching Fox News all day, you know, seeing everyone yell at each other. That sounds kind of fun in CNN. But my job is really to hopefully be a positive piece. And the last thing I'll leave you with is my fear around the media which amplifies the negativity from a purely Republican standpoint, but I think Democrats might agree as well. You know, one of my foremost responsibilities is trying to inspire the next generation. I want my kids to say public service is worthwhile. Government can work. Not big government, but the responsibility of good people with good backgrounds and experiences in bringing business sector mentality into public service and government. That is a worthwhile and very important thing to do. But so many good people are like, I would love to run for office, but I ain't stepping in that, right? I'm not going to drag my family through that. I could go on all day what it's done to my family. It's brutal. It's brutal on my kids. It's brutal on my wife. My wife, I ran a ski resort for a while. My wife doesn't know how to ski. I became a politician. She hates politics. God bless her. I'm just dragging her through it all. But, and it's really hard because it, it's, uh, people have a, it's not, well, it's not like the, the mafia where they don't mess with your family. No, politics is worse. Because they'll come after your kids, they'll come after your family, anything to put pressure on you and vilify you. And that happens on both sides, and it's not right. And the, again, I go back to my core fear 
What are we doing, not myself, but all of us saying to the next generation, you should really think about running for office. You can be a positive influence. You can help control how your taxes are spent, control what's done in the schools. We got to do that. As libertarians and Republicans, we got to come together and believe in the positive and not just, you know, fret the negative, right? We got, we got to overcome it. One side's going to win, good or evil. I don't mean to be like so, you know, Star Wars about it, you know, the light and the dark, but we have that responsibility to bring things up, champion people with a smile, bring real results to the table, and simply get it done for our citizens. We do that, we're going to be successful for the long term. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate it. That was a lot of fun.